Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The Stillinger girls were supposed to stay with their grandmother overnight. The two, named Lena Gertrude and Ina May, had taken part in a Children's Day program at the local Presbyterian church. But the show was going to end late, and there were no working streetlights. The girls were nervous about walking that late in the dark. At the last minute, the husband of the program's organizer got a great idea. Josiah B. Moore called up the Stillinger household and asked if the girls could stay at the Moore house instead of their grandmother's. The Stillinger parents weren't around, but one of their older daughters was, and she said sure. So it was settled. Lena and Ina would be overnight guests, making the Moore house on East 2nd Street even fuller than usual. Upstairs slept the two parents plus their four children, and downstairs slept Lena and Ina. But come the next morning, the household seemed anything but bustling. In fact, a neighbor noticed that no one had roused by 7 a.m. This was unusual. The next morning, Mary Peckham, the neighbor, noticed nobody's up doing any chores. Nobody's tending to livestock, anything. She said there's kind of an odd stillness surrounding the house. That's a Villisca resident talking to KCCI TV in 2011. The Moors were a farming family, and there were daily chores you could count on them doing, like clockwork. Feed the pigs, let out the chickens, that sort of thing. The neighbor called Josiah Moore's brother, Ross, who came to the house and knocked on the door. No answer. He went around back. That, too, was locked up tight. Strangely, he couldn't even peek through the windows because every one of them seemed to be obstructed. Finally, he made use of the key his brother had given him for emergencies and walked inside the house. Things were eerily quiet. He walked into the only ground floor bedroom, the guest room where Lena and Ina had slept that night, and found the girls so badly bludgeoned that they no longer had faces. Ross rushed from the house and said, I think something terrible has happened inside. Police officer Henry Hank Horton arrived and searched the rest of the house, a task made all the more daunting because the whole place was dark, the windows having been covered up with pillows and clothes. And this was 1912, a time before rural farmhouses had electricity. Horton used a match to illuminate his way with no guarantee that the killer wasn't still in the house. When he emerged from the home, he uttered, There's a body in every bed. The once sleepy town would never be the same. It's Iowa's most infamous murder mystery on the night of June 9th, 1912 in Villisca. A killer armed with an axe brutally murdered eight people while they slept. But the repercussions of this murder mystery reached far beyond Iowa as it morphed into a case that the horrified nation realized might be the work of a madman traveling the country 
and slaying entire families indiscriminately. Villisca, Iowa is a small town near the southwest corner of the state. In a twist, it was actually a bit bigger in 1912 than it is today, the population being about 2,000 per the 1910 census, compared with some 1,300 100 years later. It covers less than two square miles of Montgomery County. The Moore family lived in a white, two-story A-frame house that had been built in 1868. The family moved there in 1903 and had been well-respected, well-liked members of the small town. Josiah Moore, often called by his initials JB, had worked at a local company selling farming equipment. But a few years before the murders, he broke away from that company to form his own. He was natural with customers, great at that whole meet-and-greet business. So a lot of his clients followed him to his new business, a fact that would raise suspicions later. Josiah was 43 years old and married to a 39-year-old woman named Sarah. The couple had four children between the ages of 5 and 11. Sarah Moore was active in the Presbyterian Church and, as mentioned, had organized the Children's Day program. It's just one of the many ways the Moore family was active in the community. June 9th, 1912, was a warm summer day in Villisca, a Sunday. The program Sarah Moore had helped create was an annual event designed to showcase how much the kids had learned during Sunday school over the previous year. The children had rehearsed skits, songs, and Bible readings for the evening performance. Well, the program got over about 10 o'clock and everybody went home. This is Dave McFarland of the Montgomery County History Center in a delightfully amateur documentary called Villisca, A Town Divided. Well, the Stillinger girls lived outside of town. They phoned home and they said, we were supposed to go to Grandma's, which was a couple blocks on past where the Moors were. There was an argument going on about who was responsible for the streetlights in Villisca. And the power company had turned the power off to the streetlights, so there was no streetlights. And they were afraid to walk in the dark to their grandmothers. So they called home and asked if it would be all right for them to stay with the Moors. The Stillinger girls at ages 12 and 8 flanked the Moors' 11-year-old daughter, Catherine, in age. As investigators tried to make sense of the horrific crime scene, they became convinced that the sisters had been the last to die and that Lena, the oldest, had actually been the only victim to awaken before she was slain. Now, it goes without saying that things were different in 1912 than they are today, but not everyone always grasps how different and in what areas. And when it comes to police investigations, the differences are vast. For starters, most small towns didn't have a real police department. They might have an officer or two, but there was no budget provided for investigations because it was exceedingly rare that a crime warranting in-depth investigating would take place in any given year. This is Roy Marshall, author of the book, Villisca. We had a, a town marshal and we had a sheriff. Sheriff was purely a political office elected. You had no qualifications other than to get votes. There was no training program. These people were really, and it's not their fault, they were not expected to do a criminal investigation. They were peace officers. At the time, peace officers were there to keep the peace. Also, there was no routine funding for investigations. 
I mean, basically, when there was a big crime, the community donated money to foot the bills. That meant that victims with wealthy connections were more likely to have their cases investigated than poor victims. The Moors were pretty well off, so that was a good start. Plus, as word spread throughout the small town about this dastardly crime, residents pitched in plenty too. Eight people had been killed in their sleep, and this was evil, nightmare-inducing stuff. They wanted the killer caught and pronto. Evidence collecting was, of course, primitive compared to today. While the English first started using fingerprints as a crime-solving tool in the mid-19th century, America's first fingerprint system wasn't created until 1903. There were a smattering of experts in the country by 1912, so Velisca officials quickly called for such an expert to travel in from Leavenworth, Kansas, as quickly as possible. This is Dr. Edgar Epperly, a historian and Velisca expert. He has literally spent much of his professional career studying this case. The uh, fellow from Leavenworth arrived the next day after the murder had been discovered, and he was drunk when he got there. They took him to a local hotel where he was sobered up over a three, four hour period. And then he, uh, he did really a fairly uh, extensive examination of the site. He couldn't find any fingerprints. It had been a contaminated. Maybe a hundred people went through the site. But he did find scratches in the upstairs ceiling where the axe had scored the plaster when the killer swung it. He's right that the crime scene wasn't particularly well secured, but to be fair, that's just how it was back then. And looky-loos arrived in droves after the bodies were discovered. And in fact, Horton, the officer, managed to keep most people out until after the bodies had been removed, which at the time was impressive. I mean, this is tough to imagine from our viewpoint today, but back when police were scarce, neighbors not only showed up to crime scenes like this one because they were curious, but they showed up to help solve the crime. There was much more of a community focus, especially in rural areas. And the idea that the town would leave policing up to its one part-time officer would have seemed ludicrous. So people, some gross, some earnest, tromped through the house looking for clues. From the documentary, Living with a Mystery. And they found some old clothes. They found a bloody handkerchief. They found footprints. They found all sorts of things. In the attic of the Moore home were two cigarette butts. No one in the family was known to smoke, so this was noted. On the second floor, every one of the six victims had had their bedding pulled over their heads before they'd been fatally whacked by what appeared to be the blunt end of an axe. Everyone, that is, except for Josiah. He was covered like the others, but his head had been smashed with the sharp edge of the blade completely obliterating his face. It appeared no one had stirred from their sleep, which led investigators and wannabes to speculate that the killer had perhaps already been inside the home when the family had gone to bed. Those two cigarettes might have been smoked while he waited. Now, if we detour outside briefly, investigators noticed that a barn detached from the house had a pile of hay that looked to have been used recently as someone's bed. More than that... And there was a knot hole in the wood where if you lay down in the hay, you could see the comings and goings inside this house. So the police believed that the killer 
possibly lay down in the barn, staked out the house. That's author Richard Estep. Back to the house, the first floor had the most curious details. Every door had been locked, as had every window, except one. As mentioned, the windows had been covered. But more than that, every single pane of glass within the doors had also been covered. Not only that... They only had one large mirror in the house, and it was covered with a skirt that the killer had taken out of a dresser drawer. And then uh, there was a four-pound piece of bacon that was taken from a back room and left leaning up against the wall. And the one girl had been moved in the bed, her undergarments removed, and she was uh, sexually posed Mm. with a lamp at the foot of the bed. The one girl he's talking about is Lena, the older of the Stillinger sisters. It seemed that Lena had tried to fend off a blow because she had suffered a defensive wound on one of her arms. This fact devastated her family. You could take solace in knowing that the others didn't know what was coming, but Lena, she knew. This is Darwin Lynn, whose family has owned the murder house for decades, speaking to Local 5 News in 2002. Forget the Halloween music in the background, I didn't choose it paper was full of gruesome details. A terrified town barred windows. Not only that, but McFarland says... You couldn't buy a gun, a padlock, for 50 miles in any direction. People took turns staying up at night, guarding their family. Now, newswire services weren't a new thing in 1912. The Associated Press, for example, was founded in 1846. But their use nationwide made a big leap between 1900 and 1910. Not only that, but newspapers had grown bigger physically. There were lots of big pages available to be filled. And no matter how many times you hear people opine on how true crime is getting so big nowadays, the fact is that true crime has been regular newspaper fodder since at least the late 1800s. As such, with lots of pages to fill and people interested in crime, newspaper editors routinely pulled out-of-state crime stories from the newswire services to run. So you've got two things happening at once. More newspapers are using wire services, and they're making more use of crime content from other places. It's because of both of these things that a few keen-eyed people noticed that the details of the Velisca Axe murders sounded mighty familiar. This will sound like a bit of a tangent, but bear with me. Whether you remember his name or not, chances are you're familiar with Bill James. Most likely, that's because you've either read, seen, or at least heard of the book-turned-movie Moneyball. Bill James is the guy who created the data he termed sabermetrics used to make smart player picks for the Oakland Athletics. That's likely what will be mentioned in the lead of Bill James's obituary when he goes, but he's more than a statistician. He's also a sports writer and an author and a historian. And he happens to have been the main writer of a book called The Man from the Train, which uses the Velisca murders as a catalyst to explore a whole series of axe killings near railroad tracks over a span of 14 years. James's book, which he wrote with his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, is as irreverent as it is fascinating. If you like my snarky asides, you'll probably like his book. If you don't, skip it, because he's worse. 
Now, James starts with Velisca, but after years of research, he's convinced that the killer of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls actually started his slayings long prior, in 1898. He bases that on newspaper reports, which unfortunately weren't as detailed in the late 1800s as they would be just a decade or so later. But still, he makes a pretty compelling argument tying certain earlier crimes with better covered later ones. It's his contention that these slings were committed by the most diabolical serial killer to have ever terrorized the country. But before I dive into his theories, let's stick closer to home. Because, big police force or no, close to home is where all investigations start. That's true now, and it was true back then, too. And statistically, you're more likely to be killed by someone you know than a stranger. And while the Moors were well-liked, motivation for murder can be easily retrofitted if you try hard enough. The suspicion started with a man named Frank Fernando Jones. Jones had been born in New York, but had spent most of his life in the Midwest. He'd moved to Villisca in 1882 and, like Josiah Moore, was a successful businessman. He was what we would call collection manager. He went out and collected on accounts that were in arrears, which didn't make him probably the most popular guy. Jones also sold farming equipment, and that was the rub. Jones had been Moore's partner before Moore split off to start a competing business. And when he left, he took the John Deere franchise with him, something that Jones would never forgive him for. And they, they always laugh about the old adage about that you would cross the street in order not to meet somebody. Jones literally would. He would avoid, he hated Joe Moore. Still, that wasn't automatically a great motive for murder because Jones wasn't completely reliant on his farming business. He dabbled in a lot of things, including politics. He had served on the Villisca City Council and then won a seat in the Iowa House of Representatives in 1904. He kept that post until 1909. When the murders occurred, Jones was readying to run for the state Senate and had his eye on bigger statewide gigs, like maybe even governor one day. Though there wasn't any evidence against Jones, that didn't stop the rumors. He denied any involvement, of course, and he had a lot of supporters. He won that Senate seat in 1913. But this case would prove to be a stubborn one, and no one was arrested straight away. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months, you know the story. Finally, in the spring of 1914, the Burns Detective Agency got involved. Now, a few episodes ago, we talked about the Burns Agency in reference to the 1910 murder of Marie Smith in Asbury Park, New Jersey. In that case, the private investigator Burns sent solved the case with a doggedness that bordered on obsession. But he solved the case. And this time around, things went a little differently. The investigator sent to Villisca was a man named James Newton Wilkerson. In hindsight, he seems every bit as dogged, but unfortunately, nowhere near as principled. And this is the problem with privatized investigative agencies doing police work. If you've got someone unscrupulous helming the inquest, 
yet no way to hold that party accountable because he's a contractor rather than a public servant, and things can get super messy. That's in part because there were often rewards attached to solving crimes that the private investigators were eligible to receive. Wilkerson had been born in 1888, so he was just 26 years old when he arrived in Villisca in 1914, two years after the murders. He came because the community was outraged that the case hadn't been solved yet. Soon after he arrived, he signed on to the theory that F.F. Jones must be the killer. And he pushed that narrative hard. Wilkerson starts a campaign, and it's kind of sad, but it was almost kind of slanderous. He tried to get Jones to confess, but Jones was too slippery a slayer, he claimed. Then Wilkerson expanded his view. He posited that Jones had hired a man named William Mansfield to be the killer. Mansfield was described as a convict, former soldier, and dope fiend per Wilkerson. The newspapers kind of sensationalized this. He became known as Blackie Mansfield. Wilkerson finally got a warrant, and they went to Kansas City and arrested Mansfield. And when they brought him back, they says, okay, Blackie, why did... And he goes, Blackie. He did not know his nickname was Blackie Mansfield. They had coined it. That Mansfield's own family was murdered in similar fashion by an axe-wielding killer did not bolster his claims of innocence. Those slings happened in July 1914 in Blue Island, Illinois. Killed were Mansfield's wife, his baby, and his wife's parents. Mansfield insisted he played no role, but man, what are the odds, right? In 1916, four years after the murders at the Moore House, Mansfield was charged with eight counts of murder. Wilkerson said that the neighbors who had initially reported having seen and heard nothing out of sorts the night of the slayings stepped forward to say, you know what? I saw a guy who looked like Mansfield having a conversation about killing the Moors the very night it happened. They also said that he was having a conversation with two other men, including Jones and Jones's son, Albert. And at one point, Mansfield himself confessed. He said Jones had hired him to kill the Moors, but he soon recanted and explained that actually, Wilkerson, the detective, had offered to share the reward money with him if he helped pin the crime on Jones. And as it turned out, Mansfield had a solid alibi for June 9th, 1912. He was in another state altogether. Not only that, but the jury that weighed Wilkerson's evidence noticed something odd. And back then, investigators pulled together a so-called dope sheet, which was basically a summary of the evidence they intended to present. When witnesses listed on the dope sheet testified, they weren't saying the things that the sheet indicated they would say. Like if the sheet said one witness would testify that Mansfield confessed outright to her, she would end up saying the opposite in front of the jury. Finally, jurors caught on that the dope sheet was a complete fabrication that Wilkerson had just made it up. Charges against Mansfield were dismissed, and he never went to trial. That didn't make Wilkerson disappear, however. Wilkerson made it his lifelong ambition, whatever you want to term it as, to point the finger at F.F. Jump. And plenty of people in the community believed him. 
In the meantime, another compelling suspect surfaced. This man was the Reverend Lynn George Kelly, who wasn't from Villisca, but had attended the Children's Day program the night of the deaths. Though he left the town by train about three hours before the slayings were discovered, he would forever be tied to the horror that happened there. Kelly had been born in England in 1878, but moved to the United States with his wife in 1904. He had bound from job to job, never really settling on a path, and in 1912 was working as a sort of apprentice minister. His dad had been a minister, and Kelly figured he might be gifted in that arena too. And he kind of was. In Living with a Mystery, he's described as a confident and articulate speaker, at least when preaching. Away from the pulpit, he sounds like a mess. He seemed nervous, his eyes darting back and forth in a shifty way, and he spoke so quickly that he'd sometimes drool. It so happened that on June 9th, he had traveled to Villisca specifically to see the annual church show. When he learned of the murders, he was naturally disturbed. I mean, everybody was. But quickly, it seemed Kelly had developed a strange fascination with the slangs, and so much so that he returned to Villisca at one point and actually posed as a private investigator so that he'd be allowed to tour the house. He walked room to room, taking in every bit of the scene. Afterward, he began telling anyone who would listen his theories on the case and the killer. That kept up long after he left Villisca that gruesome weekend, which kept his name in people's minds. Over the years, he moved time and again, preaching in Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Nebraska. But his thoughts kept returning to Villisca. He became obsessed with crime. That's separately again. He's interviewed regularly about this case, including in the 2004 Living with a Mystery documentary I mentioned earlier. Kelly wrote letters to the sheriff, to detectives, to prosecutors, to judges. He just would not stop speculating about the case. And it didn't help that Kelly himself had what authorities at the time referred to as sexual perversions. And for example, he'd been arrested after advertising in the Omaha World Herald a typewriter job. That's an old-timey term for a worker, usually female, who typed notes and letters and such. It wasn't the job posting that was problematic, but rather his response to a 16-year-old applicant. He wrote the girl back and said she sounded well-suited for the job, but by the way, you'll be typing in the nude. The girl turned over the letter to the police, who learned it hadn't been the first time Kelly was accused of trying to get young girls to undress for him. A year after the Villisca murders, he was caught in Carroll, Iowa, trying to convince two 13-year-old girls to pose nude for him. Just days before the murders, he supposedly had been spotted peeping into a woman's bedroom window. Now, if you remember, Ina Stillinger had been posed Without getting too graphic, her underwear had been removed and her nightshirt had been bunched up above her hips, exposing her. Where her legs dangled off the bed, the killer had placed a lantern. Because it appeared the killer had illuminated the girl for purposes of looking at her body, some investigators believed that Kelly's motive was to do just that. He had tried repeatedly to see young girls naked, and maybe that urge led him to slaughter a family and the girl 
just so he could look all he wanted. The state brought the theory to a grand jury and... Ultimately, the state charged him with the crime, and so he was, in fact, the only person tried for the Velisca Axe murders. But there was one piece of physical evidence that didn't fit with Kelly being the killer. Remember how the ceiling of Josiah and Sarah Moore's bedroom had been gouged by the axe? The thinking was that the killer must have been fairly tall for when he raised the axe to level the fatal blows, the axe scraped the plaster. That caused some people to speculate that Kelly, who was only five foot two, would have been too short to uh, hit the ceiling. Then Kelly did something to confuse things even further. He reportedly confessed. I have to say, though, researching these old cases has taught me that it's absolutely insane there are still people who don't believe wrongful confessions happen. I mean, back in this era, cops unrepentantly gave suspects the third degree. And at that time, that could mean beatings, psychological tricks, all kinds of stuff that elicited false confessions like crazy. Which is why it's not surprising that, once out of the interrogation room, Kelly recanted. He went on trial in 1917 for the five-year-old crime. Every day, the courtroom was packed with spectators. The divide in Velisca was stark. The state attorney general, Horace Havner, argued his case against Kelly hard. The attorney general from uh, Iowa at uh, his trial said that Kelly was not only a nut, he was a whole bag of nuts. As is often the case for politicians, there was probably a good reason he pushed so hard, according to Roy Marshall. For him, being the attorney general was a stepping stone. His ambition was to become governor. So he grabbed onto this case. If he could get a, a, if he could get a uh, conviction in the most high-profile murder case in Iowa history, that was very good for his political career. On the other side was Wilkerson, the private eye. He was still squarely in the F.F. Jones did it camp, so he publicly defended Kelly and collected money purportedly for Kelly's legal costs, though in truth Wilkerson just pocketed most of that money. Also, the fathers of the Stillinger girls and of Sarah Moore supported Kelly too. There's a photo of the two grieving dads with Kelly and Kelly's wife, a photograph snapped specifically to show that the survivors of the slaying believed Kelly was innocent. The first jury came back deadlocked, so Kelly was tried again the next year. That time, he was acquitted. No one was ever charged again, so to this day, it's officially an unsolved case. Though not to authors Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, they think they figured out who the killer really is. I am so solidly in the if I wasn't there, I can't know what happened camp that it's tough for me to wrap my head around an author who thinks they've solved a case. But I have to say that James's arguments are pretty persuasive. In The Man from the Train, the authors describe grisly axe murder after axe murder far beyond Velisca, crimes that began in 1898 and stopped in 1912. The book's worth reading, even if you know their ultimate conclusion, so don't consider what I'm spelling out here to preclude you from reading it. 
Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, whom I interviewed for this episode, sifted through countless newspapers looking for any crimes that seemed remotely similar to the one in Villisca. Then they documented those cases and spelled out which elements are the same, which are different, and which they believe are part of a series of slayings committed by one lone man. The reasoning was pretty simple. A lot of the details were repeated in other crimes, and whoever killed the Moore family in Villisca didn't seem to be a novice. As McCarthy James said, I looked at a lot of family murders over the years uh, in this time period, and most of them it was kind of obvious who did it, partially because they left a bunch of clues behind, partially because there was an obvious motive, and partially because they often did not finish the job. You know, you go in there and you've never killed before, you might not know all the pitfalls of what it takes to do that emotionally, physically, everything about it. This guy had a lot of practice, especially by Valeska. He was very, very good at killing large groups of people. Now, as mentioned before, newspapers in 1911 and 1912 had started tying some Midwest slangs together. And McCarthy James thinks that this was indicative of a practice killer going through a frenzied period. Most serial killers don't start out hot and heavy, after all. They start with a single crime that's far less polished than their later work will be. So McCarthy James worked backward from Villisca, taking special note of specific commonalities. In the end, she and her father determined that crimes sharing most of the following characteristics were likely committed by their so-called man from the train. Here's the list. They were committed not just near railroad tracks, but near junctions where multiple rail lines merged. Either lumberjacking or mining were main industries of the area. The crimes took place in very small towns with little, if any, police presence. Entire families were killed in a single attack. The victims' faces were covered after the attack, usually by their bedding. The murders happened within 90 minutes of midnight after the household had gone to sleep. The killer rarely used the sharp side of the axe, but rather smashed in his victim's skulls with the blunt side. The murder weapon was one the killer found either at the victim's own home or at a neighbor's, and the killer left the axe behind when he left. There often were prepubescent females among the victims, and when there were, the girls would have been clearly singled out and often posed. The killer covered windows and locked or jammed the doors when he left. Lanterns inside were often moved from their usual locations. Robbery was never a motive, and in fact, money was often left untouched right out in the open, almost as if to prove this was no robbery. These are pretty detailed similarities. The Jameses argue that the odds of two or three of these overlapping would be awfully slim already. But to have most overlap, well, they say statistically, it's more likely that the same killer was responsible for each. And that's a sobering thought, especially when you realize that police in many of the cases were certain someone local was the killer, and several of the cases resulted in convictions of now seemingly innocent suspects. And some of these people were executed. Several were lynched. McCarthy Jones said that a lot of times police knew there was a madman riding the rails and killing families. But when such a murder would happen in their own towns, 
they'd always look for a local killer. You know, serial killers have always existed and we've always created myths to deal with them. Random serial killings are just too scary for some people to wrap their minds around. So they invent more reasonable explanations. That's not a satisfying answer. And journalists and the grieving families and the scared neighbors and the amateurish police, you know, even today we see them wanting an answer, a specific answer that's satisfying, that makes sense, that makes them feel safe again. Now, if you Google the Velisca case, you'll probably see that some believe it was the work of a serial killer named Henry Lee Moore, no relation to the Moore family killed in the case. Moore had been convicted of killing two members of his family, his mother and grandmother, with an axe. After his arrest, newspapers began attributing the best known of the axe murders to him because he was a Midwest-based guy and because they desperately wanted an answer. But the Jameses said there's nothing suggesting that Henry Lee Moore rode the rails, and they're certain the real killer did, because they found similar slayings starting in the late 1800s in Florida, Alabama, Kansas, Oregon, Iowa, Illinois, the list goes on. It seemed to them that a single killer, probably who worked as an itinerant lumberjack, was hopping trains to go where the jobs were. And he had a side hobby of familicide. Moore didn't fit because, one, he was not known to leave the region, and two, His grandmother wasn't in bed when she was killed. She'd been bludgeoned while in a rocking chair, wide awake. It didn't fit the pattern. It's more likely that Henry Moore tried to pattern his slayings after the by-then-known serial killer in hopes of getting away with it. The Jameses are confident that of the 40-ish murders they researched, the same killer is responsible for 14 of them, which, if true, would make his body count 59 which would in turn make him one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. The Jameses suspect connections with up to 25 more slayings, though they describe themselves as less certain about those. If it's true, though, it would mean that this guy killed over 100 people in a 14-year span. Now I'm going to tell you who they think is the killer. I'm forewarning you in case you want to skip this part and read the book yourself. Okay, the killer in question, they believe, was a man named Paul Mueller. Or maybe it was pronounced Muller. A lot of times it was misspelled as Miller or something close to that. But we're going with Mueller. Mueller was a German immigrant. He had been employed as a farmhand by a family called the Newtons near Brookfield, Massachusetts. That whole family was murdered the same way as the Velisca case. Found dead in their beds were Francis D. Newton, 45, his wife Sarah, 38, and their 10-year-old daughter, Ethel. From a January 11, 1898 story in the Boston Globe, quote, The autopsy held this afternoon on the bodies demonstrated the brutality of the assault. Although an axe was used viciously, in no case were the blows struck with the blade, but all with the back of the blade, end quote. Suspicion immediately fell on the family's farmhand. People knew that he worked for Newton and indeed saw him leaving the house after the murder on his way to the train. And then they were able to track him on the train for a few stops before he eventually was able to disappear into the crowd. 
Newspapers nationwide ran stories about the slayings for days as a manhunt for Mueller got underway. His background was a mystery, with him having been born overseas, and the descriptions people had were awfully vague. He was a short little man, not attractive. He had weirdly spaced teeth, a bunch of scars, kind of a, uh, an unpleasant disposition, a grumpy expression all the time, resting bitch face, I suppose you'd call it. He was between 5'4 and 5'5, five, five, uh, pretty trim, about 155 pounds, long, greasy, dark hair, and a poorly trimmed mustache, occasionally a beard, believed to be about 35 years old. He had little feet and a scar running from his wrist to his little finger and another above his right eye. He also walked with a distinctive sailor's gait. But there were no photos or even illustrations made from people's memories, so it's not surprising that he was never found. The last murder that seems plausibly attributable to Mueller was the September 29, 1912 slaughter of the Fanschmidt family near Payson, Illinois. Killed were Charles and Matilda Fanschmidt and their 15-year-old daughter Blanche, plus a young school teacher named Emma Campen, who boarded with the family. This case could be its own episode because the only surviving Fanschmidt was a son named Ray who was convicted in the slaying, but the conviction was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court and set precedent that cops can't cite dog trackers as definitive evidence proving guilt. The sum was released, and the case remains unsolved to this day. The Jameses, obviously, think Mueller is the killer. And after this slaying, the Jameses think Mueller might have died, or maybe landed in prison. Or maybe he was unnerved by the attention the slayings were finally generating, and he went back to Germany. If that's the case, the Jameses think it's possible that he might be the man behind unsolved axe murders in other countries, too. Of course, we'll never know for sure, nor will we know if Mueller really did kill the Moore family and the Stillinger girls. And because of that uncertainty, the Velisca Axe murders are likely to remain one of the most enduring mysteries in American history. Research this story, I read The Man from the Train, which won't be everyone's cup of tea, but I liked it. It's very casual in tone. This also was a case I had summarized in the book I co-wrote called Unsolved Murders, though I didn't include the James's theory in that one because I hadn't read it yet. I also read tons of contemporary news coverage and endured a few too many documentaries made by quote-unquote paranormal researchers, which included stuff like this. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 